morning. Well, Josiah at least did a great job reading, so we had that going for us. Um, But this morning is our second Sunday in the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at this relationship between signs and what God is pointing to. As as we talked about last week, we're going to spend the next seven weeks walking through what many people think are the seven signs that make up the first half of the book of John. Now, if you weren't here last week, we still have more Gospels of the John available if you want to just come up and grab one after the service or take one. Um, part of what we hope to do every year is spend from basically the first Sunday of the new year until all the way until um, Easter in one gospel. And the reasoning is for that is so that we can get the feel of what does one image of Jesus look like. We have sort of four images of, of what Christ looks like when he comes in flesh, what God incarnate looks like us between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what I find is helpful for, for Christians in this day and age is to gain an experience of understanding what one of those images is. Oftentimes we have this sort of conglomeration of all these different things that make up our idea of who Jesus is, and that is a good thing. But I think it's helpful for us to also slow down for a time and begin to get the shape of what would one person say in one story about this person. How does that open it up for us? And so these Gospels of John have uh, no chapter headings and no verses in them, so you would continue reading and not stop. Um, and uh, You wouldn't go, oh, the end of the chapter, and then I'm done and pick it up again tomorrow. Um, and I would encourage you to, to sort of just maybe try to read through at least half of it once in one sitting and then half of it in another sitting, and then just occasionally pick it up and sort of read as far as you'll get uh, to gain an appreciation of what's going on in John. Now, what I didn't point out last week, which is a weird thing not to point out, is Chris made this wonderful banner for us of a man with wings, um, an ox with wings, a lion with wings, and an eagle. And if I say with wings, it's redundant, right? An eagle with wings. Um, uh, And people would go, well, that's interesting. It looks nice. Chris did a great job at making them look like the animals they're supposed to look like. But why is that there? And we talked about this a little bit the first week, is that each of the gospel writers is associated with an animal in church tradition from the book of Revelation and the book of Ezekiel. There's two scenes where these animals sort of show up. And so Mark... Uh, Matthew, as, as Jonathan reminds me, is just a dude. Um, uh, Luke is the winged ox. Mark is the lion. And John is the eagle. And I think John's animal makes the most sense because John looks at this story from, from end to beginning. He looks at it from sort of the heavenly places. He talks about it as if Christ is already raised. He, he sort of lays out the gospel in a different way, most different than the other three, certainly. And so John has this notion of being the winged eagle. So thank you, Chris, for making that for us. Kim, it's beautiful. You'll see it when you're here. Um, She's on the phone. Um, But this is the end of John's gospel, which we talked about. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written about in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. This is how John summarizes why he wrote this gospel. But the word I want to focus on today is that now Jesus Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. First off, I'm sure like most of us, is like it'd be nice to know all the signs he did in the presence of his disciples. Why just this? And just reading this, you might say, well, there's lots of signs then that he does in this gospel, or there's lots of signs that John is going to tell us about. And in fact, John doesn't tell us a lot about these signs. 
John gives us the seven, but there's not much more there. And it's written so that you might have life in his name. This is uh, uh, Simeon, signs in Greek. Um, and the reason why I want to focus on that word for a moment is because signs point to an underlying reality. Signs point to something greater. So like most of the time when we read the miracles in the Bible, which is not a biblical name, the gospel writers each would use mighty deeds, marvels, or remarkable things. Those are the Greek words that would most often be translated as miracles in our English. But that's not a word they would have been familiar with. And I think it's helpful to think of mighty deeds, marvels, or remarkable things, because miracles for us are something in which you believe or disbelieve. Those are the only two categories available to you. But with mighty deeds or marvels or remarkable things or signs, there's something else available there. It's not just raising the question of do you believe in this miracle or not, but do you understand the underlying reality that's coming up in these signs? The gospel writer uses, I think, signs, and it shows up in other gospels too, to point us to the idea that these aren't just things that make life better for, for the people healed or for somebody, is that they're actually signs pointing to a deeper reality that's available through us Jesus, through, in Jesus Christ. It's something much larger that's being opened. It's a different change that's happening. And so often we read them and say, could I believe in that or not? But we're missing is the underlying thing. Now the hard part with John's signs is that we have this sort of just the facts notion of Christianity. And John's this sign of all, just the facts, is hard. He just turns water into wine for a party that has run out of wine. And somehow that is the first sign he does to make things apparent to the disciples to believe in him. It's a weird sign, right? Because it doesn't even really solve much of any big problems. I mean, if you're deaf and you get hearing, if you're blind and you receive your sight, we can point to those or these as good miracles. But this one, it's like, hey, they... and. They drank a lot is sort of what the text says, which is the other weird part of this, is that if you're just the facts, it's they ran out of wine at the point where it seems like people had had enough, but now they pull out good wine, and that's the miracle here. Yeah, that's, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, there's, it's, it's, not a, it's not a small amount of wine that, they, that he provides at the end of this wedding fest either. Um, and so it's a, it's a strange miracle. But I think if we move from just the facts understanding of miracles, what, are, what just happened, you know, this had to have been this way, to what's the picture of the underlying story that God is representing for us, it opens up some of these signs and miracles for us in a new and marvelous way. It opens up a way in which we can understand these differently. And so if we were just to do just the facts on this wedding, it would be that three days later they went to Cana. This is the town that Nathaniel is from, and he has told Nathaniel that you'll see greater things than what you saw when I, when I predicted that you were sitting under a tree. One of my favorite parts about this one is that his, his mother comes to him and says, they're out of wine. The wine has failed. Uh, in the bulletin, it says, the wine is failing, um, which is a translation that our English translations don't capture well what's happening, is that the wine is lacking, that there's, that there's something not there anymore. What happens is his mother comes to him and says, you know, can you do something about this? And he says, woman, don't you know it's not my time? Which, the reason this always makes me laugh is every children's story that has this in it takes it out. They, like, leave it out. Because I think it's because, you know, if it's like Roosevelt, clean your room, and she responds to Kelly, woman, don't you know that my hour has not yet come? Um, It's time to do the dishes. Man, 
don't you know that my hour has not yet come? And at some point, you've got to give your props if they do that, because they're quoting scripture back to you. I mean, this is sometimes the goal of parenting, and yet they're doing it in a way that you're like, this is, uh, this is not helpful to the situation. Um, although props for quoting John back to me. Um, so normally it's taken out of children's Bibles or children's lessons, which always cracks me up, because that's actually not the Greek either. Is that it, He could have been saying, Madam, don't you know that it's not my time? He could be saying something more soft than that. But, but, and if you have uh, lots of Bibles now, I love it, have asterisks that says, does not connotate disrespect. I don't know if yours has one. That when he says, woman, this, uh, something happened to us at some point in world history where if somebody says, woman, don't you know, it's, it just automatically means disrespect, so much so that it's footnoted in Bibles today. That, that yeah, it's in yours? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, which it may not have been. I mean, uh, uh, it would depend on how it was said, but we don't have access to how it was said, right? Um, but it seems like even here that Jesus is beginning to do this redefinition of family. And so she comes to him if we're just following just the facts and say, can't you do something about this? He reminds her that his hour has not yet come. And so he called, she says to the servants, well, do what he tells you to do. And so they pull up wine and, and fill up these, these purification jars. Now, um, this is, this is my attempt at drying purification jars. One has water, one has wine in it. And so they have these big jars that you would wash your hands in when you came into these places, right? And so Jesus tells them to fill them back up. And then in between when he's bringing the, the taste of it from the jar to the, to the master of ceremonies, it turns to wine. Like it doesn't give us the moment the miracle happened. And he says that surely this is who provided this wine. This wine is great. And you've saved it till the end. And so he actually gives the bridegroom credit for it. He actually points out that it must have been him who has provided the wine. And it's almost like he committed somewhat of a, a social faux pas by providing this last when the people have had their fill or drank too much or were drunk, depending on which translation you have of the New Testament. But these things, it's like, you know, how big are those things? Brian, what did you say? 30 gallons each. That's the highest they give. So they, yeah, they say 10 to 30. It's Baptists who say 10. It's Presbyterians who say 30. Um, and it's, it says 20 in yours. Yeah, well, it varies. I mean, they don't know exactly the size of them. So it's between 10 and 30. I did the math on the middle number to figure out, like, what is the amount that he does. And so this is, this is a bottle of wine. Uh, don't ask me how I know I'm a pastor. I've heard this is a bottle of wine. Um, this is, yeah, I, I found this in an alley. Um, you can't go into liquor stores. If, 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 if this is a bottle of wine, okay? Uh, and this bottle of wine is 750 milliliters. Um, now the first thing I wanted to do is, this is a classic, or Kelly and I lived in Oregon for a while, and they have, they sell these type of glasses here. And the, the thing they always do when you're out is, is does this glass hold the full bottle of wine? Anybody think it does? No, no. All right, well, this is, this is full, Brian. You can say this is full, right? Yeah. yeah, that's full. Nobody stole some before church. And it's always scary to do because it does, in fact, hold the whole bottle. But at some point, you're like, does it really hold the whole bottle? And I've done this more than once. Uh, we're getting there. See, it's right here where it gets scary. Yeah, there we go. 
Yes, that's, that's, that's. so when your wife says, hey, could you just have one glass of wine tonight? Find yourself an Oregon Pinot glass and enjoy. Um, it's actually, to be fair, it's not meant to be this full, by the way, because it's, it's meant to hit your palate a certain, this is very, now I'm nerdy. So you're not supposed to fill it to the brim, is my point. Um, uh, you're supposed to fill it like not even half full. Uh, but that's, uh, so that's one glass. So we could say, how many glasses in this equation do you think Jesus made of wine or how many bottles might be better? Does anybody have a guess on how many bottles of wine Jesus made at the end of this party? This is gallons. If you can convert gallons to milliliters in your head really fast and divide that number by 750, you would have the answer. Buford, you got an answer? No? Any guesses? 600. Shelly is like right there. If we had gone with the lower number, it would have been closer to 600, like if it were 10 gallons, if it were the Baptist purification jars, it would have been 600. Uh, so he makes 750 bottles of wine at the end of this wedding ceremony. It's, and it should be clear that the weddings go on for days in this culture. Like they start at the, at the house of the bride and they go sort of over the course of a weekend or even a whole week. And so they've run out of wine. And it's weird because you could be charged with a crime, oddly enough, for running out of wine at your wedding. Um, just a weird, I'm sure people have felt like that in America. We have weird standards around weddings here, but you can't do that here. Um, but like you could be charged with a crime. And so Jesus' response here is also a response of compassion. And if you're looking at this from just the facts angle, you could say that this is a generous wedding gift on Jesus' part. Because if he gives you 750 bottles of good wine, then you could sell that and, and make money, right? You could, you could have some sort of provision out of this. And people argue this sort of, if you take this just the facts reading of the text, is that this is the point of this miracle. Jesus gives good wedding presents. He keeps people from being prosecuted by the law um, because, you know, if you ran out, or at least shame. I mean, this is a very honor and shame-based culture, so it would have been deeply shameful to run out of wine at your wedding, too. And so Jesus sort of just remedies these things here. He just sort of makes these things a little bit better. It makes a bit too much of it if you're looking at it that way. Um, but if you look at it beyond just the facts level, what's happening in this story? Like, what if John's trying to point to something greater? What if the sign isn't just Jesus cares about people's social standing, uh, which, you know, you read enough of the Gospels, it's not clear he cares that much about people's social standing, um, and that he wants to give a good wedding present to this couple. Like, it doesn't seem like that's a good way of understanding this. And so what it happens if we open up this miracle as if it were a sign to point to some underlying reality? The first is, I think, is that on the third day is what this story begins with. Now, in Christian circles in the early church, on the third day doesn't just mean like, oh, on the third day, like three days later, but actually signifies something of a resurrection. Jesus rises on the third day. And it's weird because you read this story in joint with, with the, um, the one that immediately comes after it, the clearing out of the temple, is you have this, this giant sort of yes in Jesus' life, the affirmation of, of marriage by showing up to a wedding, and this no by cleansing out the temple full of corruption and idolatry at this time. Like, and so you have Jesus sort of always carrying these two things of yes and no. But on the third day, we get to yes miracle, and I don't think that's an accident. And what we get is this, what John said in the intro is, from his fullness we have received greater things. 
So on the third day, Jesus went to a wedding that took place at Cana of Galilee, and Jesus' mother and his disciple had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, when the wine was lacking, when the wine failed, as it says in the, the translation that you have in the bulletin today, this is, this is such a great line, because what it says is that as humans we plan, and as humans we go, and as humans we aim, and what happens is all our efforts at some point fail. You bought enough wine for your wedding, but what happened is, is Jesus and the disciples showed up, and so it ran out early. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a mistake that he's accused of being a, a drunkard and a glutton at some point, too. I mean, there was, a, there was on social media, somebody was asking this week, what, what part of Jesus' life would you have wanted to have been there for? And one of my friends responded, for something he did that caused him to be called a drunkard or a glutton, uh, to be at one of those parties that Jesus makes these parties, these places. Um, and so this is, uh, sorry, that thing messed me up. <laughs> when the wine was gone, our human efforts fail, right? And so all the planning, all the stuff we can do, all our righteousness, all these things fail at some point in the end. So if this is just the fact sign, none of this is available to us. But if we're reading this with the eyes that I think the writer of the Gospel of John wants us to have, is this miracle isn't just, this sign isn't just pointing to this kindness that Jesus does at a country wedding, but something greater that we're supposed to inherit and to know. The wine failed. The wine was in lack. The wine didn't last. What we planned, what we aimed for, what we've gone after didn't last, didn't make it. And so then you have these six big purification judges, jugs. You see six up there, although, uh, that you would wash your hands in. This is another one where, where things lack, right? Jesus opens up this new world and this new covenant and this new grace in God, John's gospel. John's gospel actually doesn't have some of the, some of the um, bad looking at the law that you might find in Paul. He doesn't look backwards and say, okay, all that's not, not that valid anymore. But what he does say is that in Jesus, the page has been turned. What Brian read in the, um, uh, from the book of Amos, you know, it's this wedding festival, this consummation that's happening. So Jesus doesn't come and kick the purification jugs to the sign, but what he actually does is he fulfills them and transforms them. And it's almost like this idea of washing your hands, which is really just this ritual washing to here, is that this is failing. This exists in lack. It's not wrong. It's not that God didn't want it. But when the perfect comes, the imperfect fades away. When the completeness comes, something else changes. And so if we're reading that the wine is lacked and that there's these purification jugs there and, and Jesus' idea for these purification jugs, which I don't know if anybody else is like, it does seem a little gross that, that they're the jugs that everybody washes their hands in that, that he then turns into wine. Jesus sees them as this thing in which he can purify with this wine. And if you're reading this not just as just the facts, Wine becomes the sign of this banquet of the Lord that Jesus pre prefigures in, in communion, too. That this is the blood of the new covenant. That we're awaiting this feast in heaven. And so what also happens for us is, is Jesus becomes a host almost in this passage. Jesus shows up to, to a wedding ceremony, but in the end he becomes the host through this provision. 
And not everybody knows it, the disciples and, and certainly the people, the, the servants know it, but he becomes something greater just through this. And so if we break this story open, it becomes more and more apparent to us that John isn't just concerned about the simple facts of the story. John is trying to tell us something so much more. It's a it's wedding ceremony too, which is this prefiguring of God meeting Israel and the church as the bride and him as the groom. That Jesus is coming for this moment. That Jesus makes this type of moment possible is something we believe to be true in the Gospels. That Jesus opens up the space for this thing to happen. There's six jugs too, which is always, is six in, in if you ever get like a dozen donuts and there's 11, it just wants to be 12, right? Um, like it just, there's something incomplete about, like or a carton with 11 eggs in it, that yeah, David's like, yep. Fair, fair. True. Do you want 12 donuts? Um, eggs. If you have a carton of eggs and there's only 11 in it or one breaks, it's like it just wants to be 12 for some reason. In the Jewish imagination, six is never just six. Six is always like, and then God's going to do something to make it seven. God's going to do something to make it complete. God is going to, to break open into this place. And so what we have here is not just this parable of Jesus caring about this thing, but actually this new wine, this new wife, this new quality of something coming. Jesus says, it's not my hour yet, in response to his mother, which is this idea, Jesus says it a couple times in this gospel, because his hour is that glorification that comes in the cross and the resurrection. And so he always does these things that people ask him to normally in response, it's not my hour yet, but on his own time, on his own accord through his father is sort of the way it happens that Jesus sort of needs to be led into this time by the one whom he calls Father in John's gospel. And he creates this lavish overabundance. And so what happens, in, and this again, if we look at it as this bigger story, is what happens is we have life in water or in wine that runs out and fails. And what Jesus does when he transforms this is we don't only have a greater quality, 750 glasses of wine, but we have a greater quality uh, we don't only have a greater quantity, we have a greater quality as well. Jesus breaks out the best for last. This is true for us in the midst of our lives. We still exist in a creation failing, creation of suffering, uh, a creation of disease, a creation still in need of the racial reconciliation that Martin Luther King talked of, that Karina talked into. We, we exist in a creation that's failing. And so what does it mean that, that while we were supposed to serve good things while we were here, God's provision is that this comes as the last thing. That in the last, all things will be made right. All things will be restored. It's not just that you'll have more of what you have in the present that's good, but what you think is good in the present will be better in that time as well. That God will open up a kind of eternal life that sort of transfigures this life to a pale comparison the life that failed, the life that didn't build up. And he makes something much greater, much overflowing. And John's gospel will get to this passage about the rivers of life he opens up within people. It's a continual stream of life that comes in hooking your life up with what Jesus does. So we have a sign for us today. 
the first sign of the seven that we'll walk through about the ways in which Jesus opens up a space in this world for us to wait and to see that good things come last, that Jesus provides provision for life, that when things seem like they're failing, there's a restoration that comes through what Jesus does, and it'll be an overflowing, and it'll be, in the words of the steward, that which is the best, the last. Let us pray. God, you provided at a wedding in Cana. In many ways, this is a good sign just on its facts level. You cared for people who would be disgraced. You cared for people who might be brought charges against for not having enough wine. You responded faithfully in a crisis in which you were asked to do something. But God, also through this sign, we see the deeper reality into which your life pointed through in Jesus Christ. That things lack and fail, and yet you fill up and restore. The creation decays, and yet you bring about a new creation, a new life. That life as we know it fades and ends, but you open the gateways and the pathways to eternal life. All of these signs you provide for us in John's gospel. God of steadfast love at the wedding in Cana, your son turned water into wine, delighting all who were there. So transform our hearts by your spirits that we may use our gifts as well to show forth the light of your love as one body in Christ. Open these signs and light and life for us. We ask all of this in your holy name. Amen.